Welcome to the Fireman's Trainers Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I'm your host, Rob Beckman, and today we'll be talking to a world champion shooter and his suggestions on improving your students. We bring you this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearm Trainers Association. Visit their website at ftaprotect.com to learn more about their instructor coverage they offer and their competitive pricing. Receive a special 10% off on your policy by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by the best smelling firearm lubricant on the market, Pig Lube. Pig Lube brings you the best performance by combining high-grade synthetic oil with nanoparticle technology for your firearm. The small applicator allows you to put the lube where you want it without making a mess and without using any patches or rags. Easier to apply than traditional oils in your firearm and allowing you to get back to the range and let freedom ring. To learn more about Pig Lube and the technology behind it, go to piglube.net and use coupon code FTP20 for 20% off at checkout. Today, we're joined by world champion shooter, Max Michelle. Welcome, Max. How are things going for you today? I'm good, Rob. Thanks for having me, man. Great. Hey, really appreciate you coming on the podcast today because I think, you know, instructors can can learn uh, from world-class shooters about how maybe we can help our students um, a little bit when they struggle doing things because so many times as an instructor, we've done things over and over that we might not know how to exactly instruct them uh, through all the finer details. But before we get into that, for those listeners that might not be familiar with who Max Michelle is, can you give us a little bit of your background? Yeah, so I'll just kind of take it from the top here, Rob. I, I, uh, I've been shooting my entire life, you know, just I'm from Southeast Louisiana and shooting is just a way of life down here for us. And my father got me involved in shooting, you know, when I was just five years old um, and started competing when I was eight years old. Um, I'm 38 now, so I've been at it for, I guess, right about 30 years now on the competition circuit. And it's just been, it's just been something that's been a true passion of mine forever. Um, and I get my kids involved now, you know, so that's, that's a lot of fun as well. But um, so when I was eight years old, like I mentioned, I started competing and it was really something neat for me and my dad to do together. Uh, before I was old enough to start shooting, he was hunting and fishing and doing some other stuff. But then once I got to the age where I was a little older, he had started competing and he found a local indoor range and there was a competition there on every Friday and Sunday. And um, so he started doing that. And by the time, like I said, like by the time I got old enough, I just wanted to hang out with dad. You know, I really wasn't trying to be the best shooter in the world. I just wanted to hang out with my dad. And we started shooting a couple days a week. Next thing you know, then we start loading ammo. Then we're shooting three or four days a week, you know, and it just kind of catapulted from there. Um, and probably when I was about 13 years old, I made that conscious decision and the conscious effort to do my very best to become a professional shooter. So between eight and 13, I was playing all the other sports, other little boys play football, baseball, basketball, running track. And I had great success in some of those sports, but I just didn't see the opportunity to become a professional or to do any of those things as a living at some point in my life. And I know that sounds crazy thinking, you know, when you're looking back at 12 or 11 years old, how are you making that decision? But I don't know. I just, I just loved hanging out with my dad. I loved shooting. I loved traveling to the matches and seeing all the new people and competing against, you know, folks that are twice or three times my age at that time. It was just, it was really neat to surround myself with people that could help me, um, not just in the shooting world, but also develop and become a better man and a better person. Um, so when I was 13, like I said, I, I kind of made that decision. I went to a high school that didn't have any of those sports. And um, I, funny enough, the, um, at the high school that I chose, right down the street, there was my gunsmith was there. His uh, his gun shop was right down the street from the school. 
So I would go to school. I think we'd get out around 2.30 or so. And I would walk down to his shop and I would work at the shop for two hours. And my dad would pick me up on the way home from his work. And, uh, you know, we'd go home and load ammo, go to the practice range, dry fire, do something with guns. So um, it just became a, a real passion of mine for at, at such a young age. And, and I really wanted to do something in the shooting world. So when I was uh, maybe in my early teens, I, I found the U.S. Army shooting team. I was, at a, I was at a match competing somewhere and the USAMU guys were out there, the Army Marksmanship Unit based out of Fort Benning, Georgia. They were there at the match. And I thought, wow, I mean, like it, they, they really made an impression on me. They looked great in uniform. They were always well-spoken. They were always, you know, polite to others. And then they would just crush the competition on the range. And I thought, <laughs> that is what I want to do. That's my chance. You know, that's my chance to be a professional. And um, so I worked really hard for those probably three or four years leading up to my Army days. Um, I was shooting probably four days a week at that time. And then we were dry fire, of course, and loading ammo and cleaning guns. So we pretty much did something with a gun in my hand every day, literally, from the time I was probably 13, 14 years old. And then the USAMU, were, they were kind enough to uh, offer me a spot on the team as a member of the action shooting team. And it was just amazing. So on my 17th birthday, with both parents' consent, I went ahead and enlisted in the U.S. Army. And six days later, I went to uh, six days after high school, rather, I, I joined the Army. I, I was gone. I was shipped out. And my, I spent maybe 10, a little over 10 years in the, uh, at the USAMU in the Army. And it was a great, great opportunity for me to learn how to grow up. Right? If you join the Army at 17 years old, you have to learn how to cook, clean, you know, take care of yourself, take care of your checkbook. And it was quite the challenge early on. Um, because back then, that was before the war kicked off. I just wanted to be the fastest man in the world with a handgun at that point. I didn't care about anything else. I didn't have any kids. I wasn't married. Um, it was just, how do I become better with a handgun? And it was it was a unique uh, unique situation at that point because, as I mentioned, um, you know, I joined a couple years before the war kicked off. We really didn't have a team. I was part of the service pistol team, which is more of a bullseye team, um, you know, NRA bullseye style of shooting. And that's not what I do. I'm an action shooter. I do kind of kick down the door, locate the bad guys, you know, shoot the bad guys, save the good guys, and more of a combative style action sport. And that's what I do. But anyway, we were connected to the service pistol team because at the time there was no action shooting team. And the coach of the service pistol team kind of saw the, you know, the need of, of, of the action shooters and how that actually applies a little bit more so to the, to the general soldier and how we might be able to help them in the future. So I was fortunate enough to be one of those guys they selected to come on. And, but the first two years, I didn't have a coach. So I was very much self-taught. My father got me to a certain point. Um, but after that, once I joined the army, I would literally shoot a thousand rounds a day, five days a week for eight to 10 months out of the year, depending upon, you know, if we had other mandatory training and some other things that we had to get done. But I was shooting and I was shooting a lot. And I was really trying to figure out how and why the firearms operate the way that they do. How do I operate the way that I do? How can I get faster? I wanted to know the whys and the hows. I wanted to know everything. Um, and back then, little did I know, you know, I was just being selfish. I just wanted to beat everybody in the world with a gun. Um, but, you know, then, of course, we all have our own 9-11 story. And um, I happened to be on the gun range training. And one of the civilians came running out and told me what was going on. And I, it was, I remember it like it was yesterday. And I just I was at that moment. I realized this is why I'm here. I mean, literally, this is why. You know, my, my father put a gun in my hand when I was five years old, start shooting, started competing at eight years old, started training really hard um, at 13 years old and gave up everything else in my life to just be the best shooter in the world that I could be. Joined the army, trained my butt off there. 
And now I can relay it to the soldier in a way that they can understand it because I've lived it, I've worked it, I've trained it, and I've found ways to be able to help others. So my last eight years in the Army, um, our number one mission was to compete and win. That's what we wanted to do. But once the war kicked off, our number one mission was to enhance combat readiness. And, you know, I did that several ways, but my biggest way was was teaching, was helping develop training plans and helping train the soldiers before they went to combat. And I couldn't, I couldn't train every soldier, but what we did, we did what we call train the trainers. And I'm sure you're familiar with that, but we train mm-hmm. the trainers. Uh, you know, I, I might get 60 guys out there in a matter of three days, and those 60 guys go back to their unit. The next thing you know, 60 guys turn into 600 guys, you know, and they go back and train some more guys and so on and so forth. So we really were able to help the big army, if you will, um, become better and, and hopefully bring them back home to their families safe. So that was an extreme passion of mine. And that's kind of how my instructing took off. Um, when I was just a young man, maybe 19, 20 years old, you know, I'm standing in front of an SF group and <laughs> I have to have their attention. And these guys have, have been there, done that. And I'm just a, you know, teenager, barely 20 years old, maybe. And here I am teaching them how to be more accurate and how to be faster with a handgun, because what we do in the action shooting world applies so well to what goes on to the modern battlefield or the streets that we patrol. Um, so it was just a great pleasure and a great honor while I was there. I mean, I accomplished a lot of things personally. You know, I won national and world championships and set world records. And I've done things that haven't been done at that unit before within my sport and within my division there. And it's been a lot of fun. But the most, I would say the most pride or the most you know proud I am of, of my career there is helping, helping the soldiers and helping develop those plans. Um, but at some point, it was just time for me to, to move on. You know, I'd been in the Army 10 or 11 years. Um, I felt like it was much better than when I got there. At that point, when I was leaving, we had our own team. We had our own range, which was great. We didn't have to share with anybody anymore. And we were starting a new three-gun team there. And, and I had a lot of good guys that I was leaving, uh, kind of handing over the keys to. And they were doing, you know, great things. Uh, so it was just my time to move on. I was having kids and started, you know, got married. And I thought, hey, maybe this is time to move back home. and start working for myself and kind of continue my passion and my love as an instructor and as a professional shooter. And I was fortunate enough to hook up with Sig Sauer. You know, Sig, Sig was looking for a guy at the time, you know, just right place, right time, I guess. And I was very fortunate and blessed to kind of be their pro shooter or their face of the franchise, I guess you can call it. Um, and back then we were just a pistol company at Sig and, um, you know, 226, 229, that was kind of our bread and butter. And over the years, I mean, it's really catapulted into a just a ginormous company of so many different divisions and it's been really fun to be a part of that not just to shoot and compete and win with their product but to help develop their product and to help kind of have a say and and a voice in how we how we do things as a company and that trickles down to the rest of the product line so for instance if the 320 x5 legion is more of a competitive shooting gun well there's several models in the 320 line that have a lot of that same technology in it that are going down to the warfighters in the U.S. Army and, in fact, every um, every branch of service, as well as several different law enforcement groups out there. So it's been an honor to to do what I do and, um, you know, winning and setting Guinness World Records and all these other crazy things. It's It's been a blast and it's been exciting. But I tell you, I would have never thought, you know, by winning some matches, I would have the opportunity to help a company grow or to help an instructor get better at teaching or to simply help somebody who's trying to protect their loved ones. Um, it's been a lot of fun and I truly, truly love this industry and hopefully be around for 30 more years if I can help it. Yeah, it's a quite an introduction and I didn't realize, you know, that you started off so early, but it's also, I think very apropos as we were uh, 
talking. You know, we're talking to a lot of the instructors out there that are doing defensive shooting, um, action shooting, uh, those types of things. But you bring that competition edge to it because it hits right on that point that everybody wants to, you know, ask, you know, that if you go along and, you know, do IDPA shooting, is that going to get you killed on the streets? And, you know, what's your opinion about that? My opinion is this. If, if, I, if I can make you better and faster and more accurate and you can get in and out of positions quicker, you can find the sight picture faster, you can address what type of sight picture is needed. I have three different types of sight pictures. I won't bore you with the details, but I have several different things that I utilize um, in competition. And if I can get law enforcement and military guys to join me in that journey, it's only going to make you that much better. So in my opinion, I believe that competition does not get you killed on the streets because you can use it as a certain, you can use the competition as, as a test to show you what your weaknesses are. And those weaknesses are the same weaknesses that you're going to have on the street. And those weaknesses need to be put into your training plan the next week, the next month, as, as the coming weeks come along, because you never know when something's going to come up. And for me, the action shooting world, it's so applicable to the modern battlefield or the streets that we patrol because I can truly never control any specific scenario or situation. Look, I don't know. Maybe if I go to dinner tonight with my family, some situation might pop up. I don't know what's going to happen. That guy, the aggressor, has the advantage on me. But if mm -hmm. I can work on a certain skill set, yeah, if I can work on a certain skill set that makes me better at what I do, maybe it's my recall management, drawing from a holster, reloading the gun. Um, any little thing that I can prepare and stage myself for, it'll make me better in those scenarios. So I can't truly prepare for a specific scenario, but I might find myself in a situation someday where I need to learn how to shoot underneath a vehicle or around an object. And those are the things that we're learning in competition that, yeah, we're playing a game, but, you know, we're doing this in a stressful environment, under pressure, on demand. And that's when you truly find out who you are. Definitely. And I think one thing it, it, I'll highlight with what you said, you realize what your weaknesses are. Because let's put it this way, one of the biggest challenges, you know, I call – uh, you know, tell all the instructors I, I work with that's hard as an instructor to unprogram with the people that we deal with is they watch movies, they watch TV, they play video games, and they believe they can do certain things. And certain things could get them potentially killed if they don't practice it and know how to do things appropriately. I mean, just because you can go along and, you know, shoot somebody, you know, from 100 yards away, you know, with a, with a pistol on a game doesn't necessarily mean that you can, you're that accurate, you know, even at 20 yards away from it. And that's where you've got to go along and know your limitations so you can make the proper decisions all the way around when you get in a defensive situation. And if you got into a situation, like you said, you go out to dinner with your family, you know, I mean, what, what do you want to go along and achieve, you know, as you go out and, and how could you defend yourself a little bit better in your draw and your sighting and, you know, just use of uh, barricades, you know, cover those, those types of things. And, and that's one thing I like about competition is we're not going to walk down the street and say, Oh, wow, I'm just waiting for somebody to start shooting at me. I mean, that would be a really bad day, but we can go to a competition and say, Oh, look at that. I can see that as an alley that we've got to shoot around the obstacle. This one, I've got to go and do a magazine change and all those could potentially be applicable in the real world life, but we don't get tested on it unless of course it's a really, really bad day for us. Right. Yep. I agree hundred percent. And there's no, there's nothing that says that you have to go to the competition to win. Now, you know, in my mindset, yeah, I want to win, but there's some guys out there who I tell all the time, law enforcement, military, those protecting the care of their loved ones. Look, if you don't want to go out and compete, go out in your full kit, you know, go out in your duty rig, 
go out in your concealed mm-hmm. carry rig, whatever it is. And now, now you have a built-in excuse. You can say, well, yeah, you guys beat me because you have a $1,000 gun or a $5,000 gun or whatever. And that could be your built-in excuse, and that's fine. But as long as you're out there training with what you have and what you're going to have on the job or protecting your loved ones, why not? I mean, it's just great, great training. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll give you one. Yeah, I do. I train law enforcement from time to time. And we were, took a group of law enforcement and we were doing a uh, build drill and they were competing or they were completing it from full, full gear in about five seconds. I went along, get, gave them a reference point and did it just a little over uh, two and a half seconds. So I'm twice as fast as they are. And, you know, they were asking what I did to trick out the revolver or my uh, semi-automatic Glock and everything. And I told them nothing. I mean, it's straight, you know, vanilla Glock, just like all theirs were. And it started going through their minds uh, as I was talking that, you know, this would be the people that they would meet on the street. And that's where they need to realize where they are on that curve. Are they, you know, at the front of the curve or are they behind the curve? on things. Now, obviously a bad guys can be able to pick the time and place, but they can go along and train to the point that they can be closer to that front of the curve. So when they see something going wrong, they can shoot quickly, accurately and such. And, you know, knock on wood after we spent about four hours on the range, we were able to take all the officers times from in the five second range to down to about three second range. So, you know, four hours, not a lot of time, but it's one of those things where they realize just how applicable it is. And, and if you're in law enforcement, the possibility for you having to draw your firearm and be able to sh- and need to shoot accurately is probably several times higher than my chance as a civilian going along doing the same thing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's very well said. I mean, that's, that's exactly it. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, it's just it's a great way to train. It's a great way to get ready for whatever situation you may find yourself in. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's a question for you. Um, because huh? it comes to my mind, I'm sure it's coming to the listener's mind too. With all your experience, and you've seen you know, a lot of people struggle with shooting different things like that, what is the one thing as instructors we could tell our students that would make the biggest difference in their shooting? You know, if they didn't have endless ammo where they could shoot a thousand rounds a day, a day like you did, um, is there one thing that you think that they could do that would give them exponential increases in their ability to press the trigger, sights on target, and do different things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So if that was just one thing that I can tell somebody, well, besides making sure they're getting proper training and they'll never stop learning, you're always learning as an instructor, as a student, doesn't matter, we're always learning. But the number one thing I tell folks, especially guys that can't get out and shoot very often, it's dry fire. You know, dry fire is extremely important in, in, in my regimen and all my students and anyone out there who's trying to be better. Um, and all dry fire is, is, you know, making sure there's no ammunition around the room. I'm in the comfort of my own home. I'm consciously aware of what's going on. You know, I'm doing everything slow reps, really burning into my subconscious mind exactly the way I want something done. So that way, under stressor, uh, under stress, under pressure, on demand. I can perform at a high rate of speed with proper technique and be faster because of it. Um, so like you were saying, when you were working with the LE guys there, you know, maybe they started off at five seconds and now you got them down to three seconds. A lot of that is based upon technique. And mm-hmm. some of that technique or much of it can, can be learned in dry fire. So I can work on a specific skill set. So I always tell folks, if you have one thing that you're going to change in your game, make sure you spend 15 to 20 minutes, maybe every other day. If you don't want to do it every day, every other day or every few days, doing very basic things, just drawing from concealment, drawing from a holster, mag changes, um, simple presentations, locating the sights on target and making sure you can change that vision really quickly from threat to sight 
Or if you're running a red dot optic, keep your vision on the downrange area and just bring that optic and superimpose that dot onto the target. Um, so there's a number of things in dry fire you can do. I'll just caution and tell everybody, make sure you're not dry firing at 100% speed all the time. I'm a big believer in, in at least half of my dry fire is done at about half speed. Mm -hmm. And again, that's so I can teach myself step-by-step by the numbers, the proper form and technique. So that way in a stressful, uh, stressful situation, I can just revert to my training and I'm good to go because of it. Well, that's good. And, uh, the one thing I like about dry fire is you can pretty much do it any place you want. Um, you know, at, at home, you know, if you've got, um, you know, free time and a safe location, you can sit there and practice it. And, you know, when you think about it, you know, we got to worry about grip, sight alignments, and trigger press. If any one of those three is, you know, messed up, our shots are going to be messed up, but we can all, we can improve and practice those without ever firing a live round. Right. Yeah, it's free. Cool. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Here's another tough question for you, Max. What's the hardest thing to improve on a shooter and what's your recommendation for him? Um, I think that that question, it is a tough question because it's different for everyone. I think, you know, as, as me as an instructor, I see so many different students and even in my own game, um, everybody's kind of has their own, you know, battles that they fight. You know, some guys are super accurate and you have trouble speeding them up. Other guys are super fast and have trouble having the patience to make sure they're going to hit what they're going to hit on target on target. Um, so it's really kind of based upon each individual person, but typically the the most difficult thing I see is guys trying to shoot with what I call acceptable accuracy. So most guys are just working on the recoil management process in general because it's not very fun to work on the basics, um, but I'm a big believer in the basics. You know, I really don't believe in any advanced shooting skill. I just believe in the advanced application of the fundamentals. So even if we were to talk about shooting on the move right now, I have three things that I take into consideration to shoot on the move, and I have four steps that I apply when I shoot on the move. So even something as, as advanced, if you want to call it, as that, um, I'm breaking it down into the minute details so that way I can be successful when I need it most. Um, so overall, I would just say probably the, the, the thing that I see the most um, is letting guys know that it's okay to let go of the site at times, but then there's going to be other times when you need to be very hard on the site. So you have to be able to distinguish that and determine what I call my flash floating and focused site picture. So for instance, if I have a really close target, I need to be able to use that flash sight picture, meaning my vision never leaves the threat because it takes time to come back to the front sight to for that vision to adjust. And at that three yard distance, I don't need to have that. I don't need to have that clear sight picture. But as the target gets further away, or maybe as a hostage type situation, the target becomes smaller. I need more feedback from the front sight telling me that it's lined up. So I think that's probably the most difficult thing that I get with folks besides recoil management because I do believe the grip and stance is so critical. If you want to shoot fast and accurate. You have to be able to get the gun to react a certain way and get it to come back to target without readjusting your grip constantly. So the recoil management process is, is critical, but the that's the physical aspect of shooting at a high rate of speed with acceptable accuracy is the recoil stance and grip. But the other part is just really making sure you're what I say, what I call seeing what you need to see. You know, you get just enough of a sight picture on every target that you need to be successful. I don't believe there's a perfect sight picture in my opinion. Um, you know, every target deserves a little bit of respect, nothing more, nothing less. Each one's going to be a little different. So if I have a, if I have a five yard open target, I'm keeping my vision on a threat and I'm looking through the site. If I have a 15 yard open target, I need a little more vision on that front site, a little more clarity. And if I have a 25 yard open target, I need to be fully on my site picture, you know, where the target is then blurry. Um, so I guess that's what I would say is it's, it's difficult to translate that to folks. 
not necessarily to translate it so they can understand it, but it's difficult for them to understand what it's supposed to look like. And there's several drills that you can do, but essentially if you set up one target at five yards, one at 10 yards and one at 15 yards, and just kind of play with the different types of sight pictures as you're shooting those. Um, and you can see what's acceptable and what's not. So for instance, if your sight is pushed way right on the first target, you're probably still shooting somewhere near center mass. If it's pushed way right on that 15 yard target, you're probably on the edge of the target or off of the edge of the target. So mm -hmm. it kind of shows you what's acceptable and what's not, but it's, it's you, you gotta just rep it out. I mean, you gotta do it through reps. So if I had to answer that, I would say recoil management and understanding that every target has a different type of sight picture. So that way you can be fast while remaining accurate. Very neat. You're, you've talked about the sights and such. Um, is there any, is there any mystery behind what good, good sight is and what, and what is, is a bad sight when it comes to handguns and, you know, their, their, you know, front post and, and the rear dovetail that we always see on them? Yeah, I think everybody has their, their own little personal preference, but with me, I just want to make sure I have extreme clarity as much as possible. Um, it's important to make sure you're getting some good vision downrange. As I mentioned, you kind of look through those sites at times. So running some sort of a three-dot system um, or some sort of fiber optic front sight is very fast for you to pick up. Um, it makes things very clear. I personally use high-vis shooting sites. Um, so high-vis makes what we have our light pipe technology. Uh, so the light wave uh, that we're running on that. So essentially, if you think of a fiber optic front sight, I don't know who, if you, if you or your listeners or your instructors use fiber optics, but I'm sure people do from time to time. And probably the biggest complaint that I have with fiber optics and that my students have with fiber optics is that they get dingy really quickly or the fiber breaks and it falls out. Um, but with the light wave technology, they have this skeletal system on these that really protects the light pipe, but allows for maximum light to get in. So it's very easy to replace the light should you need to replace the light pipe for different colors but you're not going to be replacing it because it's broken. Um, you know, Hi-Vis makes a great product that is extremely bright. And as I mentioned, it's the brightest on the market because it allows so much light to come into that system the way that it's set up. But the skeleton, uh, kind of the frame of that front sight, it protects the light pipe as well. So it's not going to get broken, which is really cool. And I would say, I would say this, that's more of like a daytime sight. But, you know, if you're still looking for more of a nighttime sight, um, definitely check out Hi-Vis. They now have their LightWave H3. It kind of combines the tritium, and the light pipe together. So you pretty much have 24 hour light, which is really cool. So I, I would definitely recommend checking out high vis um, to get a good sight because it does make a difference. In other words, I can look at my threat or look at my target and get more clarity from that front sight because of its brightness. Um, and then at nighttime, you want to, you want to be able to see. So, I mean, I think that's just a great, great way to go. Well, that's great. What's your thoughts on uh, red dots? I love red dots. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've been, you know, I've, I started shooting red dots at a, at a, at a very young age. Um, you know, red dots are great. Some guys don't like them because, you know, it's different. Um, you know, I've been, like I mentioned, I've been running those fiber optics with high vis for many, many years. Um, and, and I'm with guys like that because when they want to make that transition, it's hard because they're so used to the site that they can't find the dot and it makes them slower or they're not, or the dot moves around too much. Um, now, essentially the dot is moving just as much as your fiber optic front sight or any other front sight that you have but it's so small that you can see it moving so, so crazy all over the place. So it becomes a little bit more of a challenge. Mm -hmm. um, but, but look, I, I'll tell you this, you know, I was, I've been running a red dot on some of my guns since the early nineties. And, um, you know, they're just starting to get more and more popular with LE and, and military on the pistols now, but the competitive shooting guys have been, been running them for a very long time. And we're kind of like the test bed, if you will, for, for the rest of the world. And there's been some, 
good optics and there's been some bad optics, but I'll say this is that over the last five years, optics have really taken a turn for the better um, as far as their, you know, how, how robust they are, how much they work, how well they work. Uh, you know, back in the day, if, if, yours, if yours just worked for the whole match, you were happy, <laughs> you know, but now <laughs> it's like these things, you know, they just work and they work great. Um, so you're starting to see them, you're starting to see a lot of law enforcement and military guys, mainly law enforcement guys transition to red dot. So me personally, if you have the ability to run a red dot, it will make you faster and more accurate with proper training. Um, but a lot of guys say, you know, hey, they don't want to have a piece of electronic, you know, to, I guess, kind of have their life on the line with. So it's kind of each to each his own. But I do think a red dot optic with the proper training makes you faster because you no longer have to change your vision. You can just kind of keep both eyes open, which is another critical skill. You can keep your peripheral vision open and just place that red dot on the target and take it down. And regardless of the distance or the difficulty of the shot, you're always keeping your vision on the threat and you're just placing the, tar the, the dot on the target because it is always focused on infinity. So wherever you look, the dot is clear, uh, which is a nice little, you know, nice little add on. So that's going to give you your speed. And then you're going to be more accurate probably because you, you have more of a pinpoint object and you can place it onto a certain spot of a target and have great assurance that you're going to hit that target because it's such a small object. So um, I, yeah, I, I run red dots in competitions periodically. Um, I run iron sights in competition periodically, but when they, you know, when they give me the option, if the other guys are running a red dot, I typically run a red dot. And, um, you know, just because of the face, just because of the fact that it will make you faster and more accurate. Mm -hmm. I, I've, I've got a red dot on one of mine and I'm transitioning into it. And the, one of the main reasons I went to it is as my eyes age, um, I don't age otherwise, just my eyes. And uh, <laughs> I find I find a lot easier to focus on one focal plane than to go along and try to focus on a front and rear sight, um, especially in, in less than ideal lighting situations. That's just the way my eyes are. But I've been able to, like you said, I can get on a red dot and shoot just just as fast uh, with it now, if not maybe a little bit, little bit faster than I could, you know, five or 10 years ago. Yeah, it's fun. It's, it's a lot of fun to transition, folks. I'm, I'm busy right now working with a really good group of um, LE guys that I'm transitioning to all their guys to red dot optics. And it's been a lot of fun doing that transition. And some of them are older, you know, so mm -hmm. initially they don't like it, but once they find the dot boy, they like it because now they can see again. So it's definitely helpful. Yeah. Well, I, one thing I found too transitioning myself is where previously I'd, I'd just had gotten into the habit of be able to find that front uh, post and know how to put it back into the uh, dovetail. Um, when it comes to red dot, I've got to make sure my stroke is better. So it's getting out there and I'm not having to fish for it at the end when I'm trying to, uh, trying to sight things in. And in my mind, it's actually made, made my shooting better because it's coming up, boom, and I'm right on target. I'm not fishing for it, but, um, it's, it definitely yeah. takes a little bit of a, of a learning curve. It's not as simple as just picking up the uh, latest uh, version of a gun and saying, yeah, I can shoot this. Mm -hmm. It's more like, okay, let's take this and, and go over draw strokes and make sure things are good from that standpoint. Love that information. Yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. yeah I was just going to say, it goes back to that dry fire, right? You got to dry fire yep. those reps. Yep. Yeah. The, the reps. That's, I didn't go to the, go to the range and, you know, put 10,000 rounds down range to figure to get my draw stroke again. I did a whole lot of dry fire because if I bring it up and it's a, that red dot's in my line of sight, that's a good draw. If it's not, then I got to change the draw, and just over and over and go to the range. When when I've got live round in, I press the trigger and it's going to go where that red dot is. That's uh, that's what I like about it. So Max, I've been asking all our guests this year, what kind of books, websites are you reading to further your education, understanding? Um, you know, 
your business, your or firearm knowledge, things like that, just to improve yourself? Yes, yeah, so I'm in a unique position, Rob, where I can kind of, um, well, I, I guess I'll just come out and say it. I don't know if it's okay to say it on the show now, but I, I work with this, obviously with Sig Sauer and, they, and Sig has their own academy. So I am so blessed to be able to work with some amazing instructors and we do a lot of knowledge sharing. So number one, that's kind of my go-to. Every time I'm up in New Hampshire, I make sure that I go out for at least a day with the guys and we do, I wouldn't necessarily say that I do a course of instructor development, but it's more of like a knowledge sharing day. So mm -hmm. if, you, if you're able or if your instructors that are listening are able Never stop learning. Always give yourself an opportunity to learn something. Um, you know, if you can get with another group of instructors, even if it's just once a quarter, where you guys go out and, you, you know, you're going to spend eight hours on the range. And for the first two hours, you're in charge of leading the group. The next two hours, somebody else is in charge and so on and so forth. So before you know it, you're taking three or four classes while you're out there and you're learning an awful lot. And you're not only learning to make yourself better, but you're learning how others teach and how others relay information. And for me, the SIG Academy, there's just nobody better than that. So it's, it's a lot of fun because how, in my mind, I'm trying to get a thousand things out as quickly as I can to help whoever's standing in front of me. But SIG breaks it down in a way that is so simple that they just take the guys through it. And, it, and it's almost effortless for the instructors, too. Like when I'm done teaching for a day, I'm exhausted, you know, but for these guys, they just find a way to get it done the right way. And it just anyway. So for me, I like to go work with those guys and knowledge share, not just them, you know, a lot of my shooting peers that I've worked with over the years have been very, very good to me. I know you had Mike Seeklander as one of your guests here on the show before. Mm -hmm. um, he's incredible. You know, we've worked together for so many years now, 20, I think 20 plus years of shooting together. So just having people like that, that I can hang out with and learn from is incredible. And if you don't have those type of guys, there's probably somebody in your little social circle, you know, some of your peers that are going to give you the ability to be great and, and get better. So that's number one. Um, but as far as books, uh, I'm kind of really big into, Lenny Basham. I don't know if you've heard of Lenny, but um, you know, L Lenny Basham with winning in mind is the name of the book. And it just essentially makes it really simple for a shooter to, to have a better mental game and to be better at what it is they're trying to accomplish. She has an audio book as well, so you can listen to it, but I think that's great. It's exceptional. Um, another good book that I've been reading and it's, and again, I like to, I like to read, you know, easy, easy books that are easy to digest for me and kind of make sense. Another one is a good friend of mine um, out of Europe. His name is Saul Kirsch, and the name of the book is Thinking Ipsic. So it's more based around competitive shooting, um, but I feel like he brings in kind of the mental management side of it that Basham brings in, but he also brings in the sports of shooting, um, of my personal style of shooting. So it really does bring it together, and it makes it a lot of fun and, and makes the learning process, you know, overall easier for me. And I find ways to be able to relay that information to help other people. So I'm not just looking to get knowledge to get better. Yes, I want to win more championships, but really I've done enough winning in my lifetime to be happy with who I am. I don't need to win anymore to make myself feel any better. Nowadays, I'm just trying to learn how to be better so I can relay that information to other people. Um, you know, Rob, because I don't know if you, I mean, I don't know if you, you know how old you are, how, how, how often you think about these things, but sometimes I sit down and think, what happens if I, you know, if I'm gone tomorrow? You know, yeah, I, you, know, you start start thinking about your family and your loved ones and all those things. But also, what about the knowledge that's inside your head right now? Did you do everything you possibly could to relay that and, trans, and translate that to somebody else before you leave this earth? Because once you're gone, you're taking it with you. And, you know, yeah, it's how I make a living. This is how I feed my family. But more importantly, I want to get the word out of, of how and why I do what I do and the fundamentals of speed shooting. And I just want everybody to know as much knowledge as I can get them. So... I guess that's a long way of saying that's kind of how I maintain my instructor status and how I develop and get better. 
That's really good because I think, uh, you know, kind of touched on that point. You know, once we're gone, you know, whatever we have, we've taken it with us. And, you know, we can really kind of measure our, our impact, you know, not by, you know, how many dollars, you know, we make throughout our lives, but, you know, how many lives we touch to improve, you know, to help them through that situation. As I go along, you know, I tell, you know, the people that I teach, both students and instructors, you probably will never know the number of people that you've made an impact on as far as a conflict avoidance, you know, avoiding a bad situation or those, you know, rare instances where they've had to go along and respond, you know, uh, with a firearm to save themselves, how many families that may have made a difference to. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, I'm passionate about this podcast about trying to make the instructors out there more knowledgeable and the students more knowledgeable uh, in an indirect way. So that, that's really ties right into the podcast. So thanks, Max. You got it. Excellent. So, hey, where can people find out more information about uh, Max Michelle if they want to have you come out or want to take one of your courses or something along those lines? Yeah, so I offer a lot of different teaching nowadays, especially with all this kind of craziness going on in the world where many of us can't travel. Um, I do some different programs, mentorships and whatnot online. Um, but the easiest way to find me is just maxmichelle.com, M-I-C-H-E-L, so maxmichelle.com. And we're doing some upgrades and some, I guess, some updates to the website right now. So it's currently down, but um, other than that, Instagram, Max J. Michelle, and Facebook is MaxMichelle.us. Um, those are some easy ways to find me. And I'm excited that I, to announce that I just launched a new product. Actually, today, <laughs> this week, I just launched a new product. Um, it's called Train With Max. So if you just go to Patreon.com slash Train With Max, um, it's an online shooting community that I'll be pumping out uh, regular content throughout there. And I do live streams as well as far as dry fire sessions. Um, questions and answers with lectures and and, and many more uh, many more things that we're going to have going on there but it's uh, it's been a lot of fun being able to help others and that's probably the easiest way to find me is social media or at patreon.com slash train with max okay i will include links in the show notes for our listeners that may not or may be driving right now and don't have a pen or pa- a pencil available to them so it will be available to you yeah there. Well, thanks, Max, for coming on. I really appreciate your time today. And that's a wrap for this episode. We have a few requests. If you have any ideas for new episodes, suggestions on guests to have on, or feedback, please email us at ftp at concealedcarry.com. Share this episode on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and encourage others to listen and subscribe also. Like and rate our podcast on iTunes and Google Play. Visit our sponsors, especially the Firearm Trainers Association at ftaprotect.com, and check out their instructor insurance. Being a responsible instructor means having insurance coverage. Remember to use promo code FTP10 at checkout for 10% off. We bring you this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. We live in interesting times, everyone. Stay safe out there. Concealed Carry Inc. and ConcealedCarry.com strives to share helpful information and education about gun-related topics, training tips, and other things that may potentially have legal implications for its listeners. The information contained in this podcast is intended in good faith, but it is important to understand that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand laws that apply to them. Nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued as legal advice or counsel.